0: would please to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Tonight we, as we have discussed, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, one of the two ordinances that Christ gave to his church. And since we changed our observance from a monthly observance to a quarterly observance, what I've attempted to do is each of these evenings that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to bring a message that uh, particularly speaks to some aspect of the Supper, uh, tonight's message is going to be part number one of the sermon. And so this is one of those sermons that has a long interval until you get to part number two, because it's going to be three months away till we actually get to part number two. Uh, I discovered as I was putting all of this together that I couldn't say everything that I wanted to say in one message. So we're going to come back to it the next time we Lord uh, observe the Lord's Supper. But tonight we're going to look at one of my favorite topics and we're going to look in one of my favorite chapters. It contains several of the favorite subjects that I like to speak on. It speaks of The eternal God, Jesus as the eternal God, and you find that in verses 1 and 2. It speaks of him as the creator. Jesus is the creator in verse number 3. He's the light of men in verse number 4. Uh, We find the incarnation of Christ in verse number 14. The transcendence of God in verse number 18. And then one of my favorite themes in preaching, as you well know, is the sovereignty of God. And we find that in verses 13 and 14. And then we also have in this chapter the introduction of one of my favorite Bible characters, and that's John the Baptist. Uh, John was the last Old Testament prophet, and perhaps he was the most blessed of all the prophets because um, while the other prophets foretold of Christ, they said Christ is coming, and for thousands of years they said Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming. John was actually the prophet that got to announce that Christ is here. And John said those words, that Christ is here in such a profound way that his statement has become one of the classic statements of the Bible. So all of the Bible melds together in a very powerful way at the time that John pointed out Jesus. Now tonight, if you look at verses 19 through 28, we're going to use that as an introduction to John's great statement. Uh, John chapter 1, verse number 19 And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? He answered, No. Then they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. Whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. Now verse number 29 is our text verse. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. So much for this evening, the time that we have to come together to celebrate this memorial of your death. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we look into your word tonight. And may you speak to our hearts in a, in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse number 29, again, is the text first. Well, the next day, John, seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world." Of course, that's the statement that I've been referring to that John made that is such a powerful statement. It's one of my favorites. In fact, I think the whole world needs to know about this statement that Jesus Christ has come into the world to take away our sins. And actually, Christianity is the... Only religion that deals with this question of sin, no one no one else in any other religion actually deals with this. And so that means that only true Christianity can ever enable a person to see God. To see God, you can't just admit that Jesus lived. Historians uh, admit that Jesus lived. Uh, you can't just believe that Jesus did some good things and that he was or died as a religious martyr. There are lots of men who have died as martyrs to their cause, but Jesus was not a martyr. He was the Lamb of God who gave his life for the sins of his people. He is the unique, only begotten Son of God. And it's overwhelmingly significant that the Bible calls him, and that John said, this is the Lamb of God. Now, I want to use this text tonight as the, uh, for the observance of the Lord's Supper. The very first Lord's Supper was observed. On the night that Jesus was taken to be crucified. The occasion was the Passover celebration. And Jesus used that Passover to show his disciples that he was the the lamb. That he was the real lamb who had come to take away sins. Paul later made that very same connection when he spoke to the Corinthians. And he said, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So what I want to do tonight is just to briefly trace... Uh, The sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, and actually we're just going to look into the book of Genesis. Uh, There are lots of examples that we can find. Uh, I have four examples that I want to give you, but I'm only going to get to three of them tonight. Uh, The fourth one we're going to save for the next time where we're actually going to talk about the Passover lamb. So it's going to be three months before we get to the fourth uh, in this list. And that next message will be about the Passover lamb and also about the power of the blood of Christ. So this evening is part of part number one. Just part of part number one. So uh, we want to look first of all, or what we're going to look at tonight is the pictures presented by the lamb. The Old Testament contains a long history of preparation of this statement of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. And there shouldn't have been any mystery when John came and he said this. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. Because the people had been looking for him. And they knew that the Lamb of God was corresponding to the Messiah that would come. And they knew that connection between the Messiah and the Lamb. Now the first connection that we see of of the Lamb to the Lord Jesus Christ is all the way back at the very beginning. And this is at the, the beginning of creation... And it's the lamb that covered shame. I want you to turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Here is a story that every Jewish child was taught as he was growing up. We teach the very same thing to our Sunday school children today. Uh, A good place to begin is always at the beginning. And so we go back to creation. And creation was not very old before God showed a vivid display of his plan and purpose for the salvation of men. And the occasion was the fall of man. This was when Adam disobeyed God when he partook of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said that you're not to eat of that and God put that one prohibition upon Adam. Now if you look here in verses 16 and 17 in the second chapter, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So that's the prohibition. God said, Adam, you you will die if you eat of this tree. I don't have time to rehearse all the details. You know the story, Adam did eat of the tree. He disobeyed God, and when he did, that caused the fall of man. And that's how the whole human race became sinners. At that moment, God could have ended it all. He could have said, well, I created man. Man sinned against me, so I don't want to have anything to do with man anymore. But instead, God was gracious, and he was merciful, and he showed that he actually had an eternal plan, which would, in the end, bring all glory to him. Now, the first display of God's plan is found in chapter 3, verse number 21. It says, unto Adam also, and to his wife... Did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? Now, where do you suppose that God got those skins? Well, the obvious answer is that God had to kill an animal. The blood of an animal had to be shed in order for God to make those coats of skins. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but the Jewish Talmud that's come down through history tells us or says that the animal that was slain was a lamb. Now, I don't have any trouble believing it was a lamb because the lamb is the same animal used over and over again throughout Scripture as a sacrifice for atonement. The Scripture says, without the shedding of blood is no remission. And that means forgiveness. It means to be released from the guilt of sin. So all the way back in the very beginning, God showed that sacrifice is the means of taking away the guilt and punishment of sin. Now when Adam sinned, he realized that he had sinned. He realized that he was naked. He'd gone against God's command and he was ashamed of that. And so in a desperate attempt, Adam and Eve made uh, coats or, or, or aprons of fig leaves in order to cover up their sin. But God wasn't satisfied with that. Adam could not cover his own sin. God was not satisfied with his efforts. Fig leaves could not cover the shame that Adam had brought upon himself. Only God could do that. And so God made his own sacrifice. He killed a lamb so that Adam and Eve could stand righteous before him. Now, do you see what I'm saying here? The Scripture states this in so many ways over and over again that it's the most important part of the Bible. Righteousness does not come by our own efforts. God will not let it be that way. Righteousness comes by what God does and not by what we do. And so it was God who killed that lamb. And it was God who made this sacrifice And while he was doing it, he was preparing his people for the statement that would be made later on by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. Well, the story goes on, and soon after that, perhaps within about 15 or 20 years, there was another very important sacrifice. And this was the lamb that was an acceptable offering. Now, we're still in the book of Genesis, so if you go over to uh, chapter number 4 and verse number 1. Genesis 4, verse number 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. These verses raise a lot of questions in people's minds. There's some who think, well, what God did here was too harsh. God God treated Cain too harshly. I mean, poor Cain, he didn't know what to do. Cain was doing the very best that he could. He was trying really hard. He was confused about what to do. And so instead of bringing a lamb for sacrifice, he brought what he thought was the very best, and he was really trying hard, so he brought of the sweat and the toil of the fields. And I have no doubt that Cain tried really hard. I have no doubt that the fruits and vegetables that he came to offer God were the very best that he had. That was the cream of his crop. But Cain had a problem. Cain had a rebellious heart. Now, if you go back to that lamb that covered shame, you needn't think for a moment that God did not let Adam know why he killed that lamb in order to cover him. What God did was actually radical. I don't know what Adam must have thought when this happened. Uh, God did this, and here were animals that were innocent. And you think about Adam Adam had a special connection to the creation that no other person has ever had. His connection with the natural world was actually unique. I believe that Adam was closely in tune with nature, he was their keeper. In chapter 1, we're told that Adam had dominion over the whole earth, over every creature of the world. In chapter 2, the animals were brought to Adam, and he looked over them, and he named them. Listen to verse 19 in chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And so Adam had no fear of any animal. There was no death at that time. There were no predators. And out of that group of animals, God took the the sweetest and the gentlest of all, he took a lamb, and he killed it. What do you think that Adam thought about that? Well, God showed him in a shocking lesson how terrible that his sin was. And don't think for a moment that Adam did not pass that information along to his children. This was a shock to his system and there, there's no way that it wasn't indelibly pressed into Adam's brain why God did this, what God did and why he did it. And then we add to that, we look at Abel's sacrifice. He brought the right offering. There was no guesswork in this. He'd been taught. And there's not a Bible expositor that I know of that disagrees that during the entire time that Cain and Abel were growing up, that Adam was not continually making sacrifices. He was teaching his children because that's what God required to do. We don't find in the Bible a specific command for sacrifices until the giving of the law of Moses. And yet, sacrifices were consistently made. And so that demonstrates that prior to the law of God, God demanded sacrifice. Then later, it was codified on Mount Sinai. So thousands of years before Moses, people were making sacrifices. Remember that Noah brought those animals into the ark? He brought seven clean animals, seven of every clean animal. You know why he did that? Because later, those would be the animals that God would permit for food. So they wanted them to multiply very rapidly. But also, these were acceptable, some of them acceptable animals for sacrifice. So people were making sacrifices. Later, we'll come to Abraham who made a sacrifice and many sacrifices, even though he lived a long, long time before Moses. And so when we come to Cain, Cain did not innocently bring the wrong sacrifice. He was stubborn and he had a rebellious heart. God said, you're supposed to bring an offering of a lamb, but Cain said, no thanks. Not for me. Blood sacrifices are too gory. I want to worship you my way. And did you know that same rebelliousness is in the heart of man today? People do not want a bloody religion. They're too refined for that. They have their own way of worship, and so they just leave out what God requires. So you have those that have Christian on the door of the church. They claim to serve Christ, and yet they won't speak of his blood. Uh, They'll not speak about the horrors of the cross. They'll not talk about the blood that Christ shed on Calvary. So they've taken blood out of their hymn books. They take it out of their sermons, and they go merrily along, thinking that they're serving God. And the truth is they don't serve God any more than Cain served God. And Cain's heart was so rebellious that the Bible says that in his jealousy he rose up and he killed his brother Abel, and then God made him an outcast because of that. And do you know that there are preachers and churches today that are trampling on the sacrifice of Christ because they will not preach His blood, and there are false teachers and false churches that are rising up and they're slaying unsuspecting people with a bloodless gospel. And you know what the Word of God says about it? They will be cast out. In uh, Matthew 7, Jesus talks about this religious tomfoolery. And it comes right after what we read this morning. Verses 15 through 20. Here in verse 22 in Matthew, it says, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Who do you think that Jesus was speaking of? Are these atheists? Are they agnostics? Are they, are they spiteful heathens that would never darken the door of a church? No, folks, these are canes. These are people who prefer to worship God in their way. And so they claim that they're worshiping God with all the junk that goes on in their churches. And so they skip and they hop and they jump around and they say, oh, how we love Jesus. And so they have their entertainment and they have their activities. They have their community projects. They have all the works that they're supposed to be doing for Jesus. But they come to God without an acceptable sacrifice. And so their religion is all about them and always about them. It's not a religion for the glory of God, and so they bring all the fruits of their labors, what they do for Jesus, and Jesus says to them, "Get out of here! I never knew you. Get out of my sight, all of you canes." Now, friends, the blood of Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that God accepts. You don't get around Him. The lamb was an acceptable offering. That pointed to Christ. When Abel offered that lamb, that was the acceptable offering because that's what God required. Now, in our time, the sacrifice has already been made. Jesus was the lamb. He's the one led to slaughter. Innocent, no guile, no sin in him. He spoke not a word. Isaiah says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So he's the only acceptable sacrifice. Now we go on to our third example, and this is the lamb that replaced the son. And the lamb that replaced the son is in Genesis chapter 22. I want you to turn there so we can read about this sacrifice that led to John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Now I, I don't know how you feel about Genesis chapter 22, but I think it's one of the most moving pieces of literature that's ever been written. It's hard to read Genesis chapter 2 without a lump in your throat, and without tears coming to your eyes. I wish we had time to just explain it more, but we're just, we're just going to look at it briefly. And it's, of course, the story about Abraham when he took his son Isaac upon Mount Moriah. Now, I spoke a moment ago about the shock that it must have been to Adam when God killed that innocent lamb and then took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve. Well, here is another shocking thing that God did. And this must have, or it really was, immeasurably worse than even killing a lamb. Now, I I want you to remember, first of all, who Isaac was. Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. His mother, Sarah, was 90. He was a miracle baby that was given to a man and a woman who thought that they could never have children. And God promised Abraham that he would be blessed of all the men who had ever lived, greater than all men who had ever lived. He said, a great nation will come from you. God promised he would bring out of him a chosen people. And best of all, the one who would be called the Lamb of God was descended from him. And all those promises were made to Abraham before you get to chapter 22. And so that makes what God says here stunning and probably almost incomprehensible to Abraham at first. Now look at verse number 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. That means that he tested him and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. How would you take that statement if that was made to you? Take your son, your only son. Now there, that means the son of promise. This is the only one that's been born to Abraham legitimately. And God says, you take him and you make a burnt offering out of him. Now can you imagine that? How could God ask such a thing? Well, God would never ask such a thing of anyone who didn't have faith like Abraham. You see, God already knew Abraham's heart. He knew what Abraham would do. Have you ever thought about that in connection with the sovereignty of God? God is here about to give a timeless example of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Do you think that God was going to let that example fail? So do you believe that God thought, well, I sure hope that Abraham does this. Because if he doesn't do it, then my example is ruined. And I'm going to have to figure out another way to show people what... What I want them to know, how am I going to get the point across? Folks, not on your life. God in his, sovereignty, in his sovereignty is shown from Genesis to Revelation. All things work according to his plan and purpose. And God knew what Abraham would do because God gave Abraham his faith. And we see it in the next verse, verse number 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. He obeyed God. Now, when they got to the appointed place, Isaac, who had been taught about sacrifices, just as Cain and Abel had been taught about sacrifices, asked a question. They had the wood, they had the fire, they had a knife, and so Isaac asked, where are the watermelons and the squash for our sacrifice? No, he didn't ask that. He knew what God required, just like Cain knew what God required. So, Isaac didn't notice that something was missing. He said, well, I guess anything will do for sacrifice, won't it? Now, listen to what he asked. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where?" Is the Lamb? What a question that is. And that question reverberated all the way down through history. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that will end all sacrifices forever? Where is the lamb that can take away our sins eternally? Where is that lamb? And John the Baptist is the one who got to answer the question. Where is the lamb? He said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But Isaac asked the question... Everything's prepared, but there is no lamb. And that's because Abraham really did intend to sacrifice his son. And so we ask, well, even with great faith, how would Abraham ever do such a thing? How barbaric, uh, how, how unchristian that is. How disgusting. How could that old geezer blindly follow God? But Abraham didn't blindly follow God because he clearly saw something before him. And Hebrews tells us what that is. Abraham was not blindly following God. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Verse 19. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now there's our answer to why. And there's our answer to real faith. Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. And so Abraham fully expected that he would carry through with the sacrifice, that he would take that knife and he would slit Isaac's throat and he would let him bleed out and just as soon as he did, God would raise him from the dead. How else could the promise be fulfilled? God said, in in Isaac your seed will be called. You're you're going to have Isaac, and and Isaac is going to be the one through whom this promise comes. So how else is God going to fulfill it unless he raises him from the dead? And so Abraham's belief was demonstrated by the command that he gave to his servants in verse number 5. Genesis 22, 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to you again. So Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, but he fully believed that Isaac would make his way back down the mountain with Abraham and together they would come back to those servants. But you know something? Isaac didn't have to die on the mountain. God had a picture that he wanted to show. And so when Abraham was just about ready to do the deed, the real Lamb of God spoke to Abraham. Did you know that? The real Lamb of God spoke to Abraham. Listen to this, Genesis 22. Look look in your Bible there, verse number 10. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven. Who is that angel of the Lord? Haven't we seen that in Scripture before? The angel of the Lord? Who is that? He said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad... Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. You might want to underline that, from me. That angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold him, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So there's the picture. Here is the eternal son of God, the savior of the world, speaking to Abraham. And he says, you don't have to do this because there is a lamb that has been prepared for Isaac's place. Now, there's a lamb that's going to die for him. And so God provided a lamb for sacrifice. And that was the lamb that took the place of the son. So here's what was demonstrated. Jesus Christ came to die in our place. And Abraham was spared from offering the only son of promise. But God didn't spare himself when he took our place. God gave his son. His son, Jesus Christ, is the ram caught in the thicket for us. He's the one who died in our place. But friends, when God offered up his only son, there was no ram caught in the thicket for him. He died on the cross. And you know why? Why? Well, Hebrews has the answer to that as well. If we look over in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then said, I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. God couldn't offer another animal. A million animals couldn't take away sin. And so therefore he sent Christ, and Christ came to do the Father's will. And this is the sacrifice for all the ages. This is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And all the lambs that were ever sacrificed pointed to him. And so when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, one more sacrifice would be made, And then there weren't any more sacrifices that needed to be made. Jesus would be the last one. Now, I've got one more example for you, but we don't have time to get to it tonight. So we're going to wait three months, and we'll be in the same place at the same time. We're going to talk about the fourth example. So let's close the message. I hope that you've seen in this the gospel of Christ, because everything that I've said to you tonight is contained in the gospel. Salvation is all about sacrifice. It's about a lamb that suffered and died for our sins. And the lamb is Jesus Christ. And folks, the picture of what he did for us is presented in this beautiful memorial of the Lord's Supper. This is a remembrance of the cross, which is the altar of sacrifice. And in this picture, we see the body of Jesus Christ broken for us. And then we also see the blood that was shed on the cross. Now, before we get to our supper tonight, I'd like for us to sing a song. We're going to sing the power of the cross. Uh, I'd like for our deacons, if you would come, and if someone's helping us tonight, I think Brother John is helping us uh, prepare for the um, distribution of the elements. But we're going to...